Well, why don't you grab your Bibles and start by opening them to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 this morning. And As you're turning, I'll ask, have you ever heard of Gnosticism? Gnosticism. Most of you, probably not, a few of you maybe. But let me tell you a little bit about it just as we get going here. Gnosticism was an ancient philosophy, you could even call it a religion, that flourished a couple hundred years after Christ. Centuries before this, way early on in Greek philosophy, this idea arose that all things physical or material are evil, while all things spiritual are good. There's just something inherently wrong or bad about matter and something good about spirit. And so the physical world was made inferior to the spiritual world, the human body inferior to the spirit, and so on. Well, Gnosticism came along later in the game. They took this dualism to a new level. Gnostics believed that God was pure good because he's pure spirit. But God didn't create this world. This world is physical. It's, it's mostly evil, and God didn't have anything to do with that. This world was created by, by demigods or other forces. God himself is very detached, very uninvolved with this world. Our world, by contrast, is, is almost at the entire other opposite of the spectrum from God. God is all spirit and all good, and we're almost all physical and therefore entirely bad. You can think of existence like an onion with its many layers, and God is at the center, which is pure spirit. And we're almost at the very out, outside of that onion, almost all physical and therefore bad. However, humans do have a spirit enclosed within their bodies, and that's really the only good part about us. They call it the divine spark. And the goal of our lives then becomes simple. We, are, we need to free ourselves from this prison called the body so that our spirit can ascend to that spiritual realm where God is. We want to move from that outer physical layer to that inner spiritual layer. And the question really then becomes, how do you do that? How, how does that work? How does that happen? And to Gnostics, the answer is knowledge. Knowledge. That's what the word gnosis means in the Greek. Knowledge. Hence Gnosticism. Our good spirit is trapped in our evil bodies and needs to escape and ascend from the darkness to the light. And that happens by enlightenment. A spiritual awakening by knowledge. That's just, that's that's it. That's a really brief introduction to Gnosticism. If you've never heard of it before, well, now you have. And like I said, this philosophy started to gain steam a couple centuries after Jesus and actually became quite a threat to the church because this this very false way of thinking started to infiltrate the church. And a real danger arose because they they took Christian names and terminologies like the name of Jesus and and the title Christian, but then they started attaching it to these very false and and unbiblical concepts. For instance, take the idea of salvation. According to Gnosticism, salvation is not about the forgiveness of sins, being reconciled to God. It's about the the soul escaping the prison of the body. Also, salvation is not by faith, but by knowledge. And Jesus isn't the Savior. He he becomes this this ultimate guru, this this wise man or sage. And his role is to dispense this secret knowledge to man. And that, that, that term is key, secret knowledge. Remember, the way to escape this world is through knowledge. 
But what knowledge are we talking about? Well, that's kind of a secret. That's, that's kind of a secret. It's this mystical, obscure, hidden knowledge. If you somehow happen to become enlightened, if you stumbled upon this knowledge, then you'd become an insider. You would be among the informed, the initiated, the elite. But there was no real desire or need to spread this knowledge around. It was like a secret. It was meant to be kept that way. It's kind of like membership to a country club. If you have it, you don't really want anyone else to know about it or to have it or to find it. It's just you keep it to yourself. Now, there are many, many heretical teachings that came out of Gnosticism. And thankfully, many church fathers arose to defend the truth and to refute their error. But I just hope that you yourself can clearly identify, at the very least, this problem with this whole idea of secrecy. This has no place in biblical Christianity. The true faith is not a secret. It's open, it's exposed, it's out there for everyone to see. The good news is meant to be shared. And if you yourselves have actually received the good news, it compels you to tell other people about it. You just can't keep it to yourselves. You must pass on and share what you have learned. That's true. There are many outsiders. Most people in the world are uninitiated into the true way of the Lord Jesus. But we don't want to see them stay that way. Our great desire and our great commission is at the very least to let the way of the Lord be known. And this is the message that we find from Jesus in our passage today. The good news of Him. The truth of the gospel that the saving message of eternal life is made public. The secret is out. And the way to God, it's open to anybody who would simply listen and heed. And this is the message we find from Jesus in our passage. And it's very reassuring to hear him say this. It's very good to hear Jesus say this. Because for a while there, you might think that Jesus was trying to keep the truth a secret. Especially after what we learned last time about Jesus teaching in parables. You might catch the impression that he is trying to keep everything about him a secret. We're here in Mark chapter 4 now, and Jesus is already one year into his ministry. But even still, he's already been fully rejected by the leaders of Israel. They have already come to the point of claiming that he is not God incarnate, but rather Satan incarnate. So in response to this rejection, Jesus starts to teach in parables. He had not really taught like this before, so his disciples later come and they ask him, Hey, what's up with the parables? Why are you teaching in parables? We studied his response to that question last week. Why teach in parables? Well, one reason is to powerfully communicate mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Parables have a revealing function. They reveal these great, deep truths about God. But he answers that question in a second way. Jesus also explains another reason he teaches in parables, and that is to hide the truth. To hide the truth. Parables have a concealing function. And this is what we learned last time in verses 10 through 12. Just to refresh your memory, look at verse 10 of Mark chapter 4. 
As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. What we find from this is that parables are like stained glass windows. To those on the inside, they see this amazing picture in vivid color. It's beautiful, it's magnificent, it's revealing. But to those on the outside, all they see is a dark, dull, lifeless, unintelligible picture. They can't make it out. And so parables are like double-edged swords, both revealing truth and concealing truth at the same time. And where you stand in this regard depends on faith. Only by faith do you move from the outside to the inside. Only by faith, then, are you able to understand the truth behind the parables. But if you lack faith, you will stay on the outside, and the parables will only confound you, confuse you, and conceal the truth from you. But we still ask, okay, but why would Jesus do this? Why would he want to conceal the truth from anyone? I thought his whole mission was to reveal the truth. And that's true. Jesus has done that. In fact, he's already been preaching for an entire year, revealing the clear truth about himself. He even attested to that truth with signs and wonders and miracles. But he was still met with rejection. The people already rejected the truth. Apart from a small band of disciples, the people rejected him. And they were hardened in their sin. In response to that, Jesus is not going to give them more truth that they can reject and rebel against. He's not going to reveal more of God's plan to them that they can misuse. They have rejected the truth. They have misused the faith. And they're left on the outside. And so we find that parables then have a way of confirming a person's status. If you lack faith in Jesus... They confirm your unbelief, they seal your judgment, and they hide further truth from you. Now this is all recap from last week. When you get all this, and you start putting this together, you might get this impression that, okay, if you meet an unbeliever then, that you're supposed to keep the truth from them. You're supposed to hide the truth. I can see the disciples connecting those dots as Jesus is teaching them. Because at this moment, Jesus was in the process of revealing the true meaning of the parables to them and them only. Everyone else was outside. But the disciples, they were the insiders and they were getting the real meaning, the real deal here. And them only. And so they might think, oh, well, this must mean that Jesus wants us to keep all this a secret. To keep this to ourselves. Don't tell anyone. This is just for us. He means this only for us. We're the special ones. We're the insiders. The disciples could have easily concluded that they were meant to keep the truth literally in-house. But that would have been wrong. You see, Jesus had a very specific reason for withholding the truth. So far, after a year of ministry, he was still largely keeping a lid on the fact 
that he was the Messiah. He was keeping that under wraps in some respects. People get confused by that. I thought his whole mission was to tell people he was the Messiah. Why why wouldn't he just come out and just say it, tell everybody? We even find Jesus silencing people who he's healed. He says, don't tell them who I am. Why, Why would he do that? That doesn't make sense. He's supposed to tell people he's the Messiah. But as we've studied, he was not the Messiah that people were looking for or expecting. And so, at first... He kept his true identity under wraps to avoid a major misconception and a great misunderstanding. That being said, it's not like Jesus said nothing about himself. He revealed a great deal about his identity, his mission. Only he often used figurative language. Take John chapter 6, for example. You don't have to turn there, but John chapter 6. At the outset of his ministry... Jesus didn't stand on a box and say, here I am, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ. Let's just get this over with, here I am. He didn't outright say that, but he did say things like this. John 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, he who believes in me will never thirst. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, Jesus, he's revealing a great deal about himself in these words. But they take ears to hear. John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. See, Jesus, he has plenty to say about himself. It's not as direct as you might expect, though. He chooses to reveal himself slowly in a way that requires faith to see, to understand, just like the parables. At times he's indirect. At times he keeps things veiled. But... It was not Christ's intention to conceal the truth about himself forever. He awaited a time when everything would be made known. The veil would be lifted and and everything would be out there public for all to see. When all would be revealed, there would be no more mysteries of the kingdom. But something had to happen before that. Something had to take place before all could be made known. And what was that? The full truth about Jesus could not be revealed until his death and resurrection. He had to die first and he had to rise again before all could be made known. The full picture of Jesus could not be known or understood until he died and rose again. You wouldn't understand the Messiah until he died and rose again. So he couldn't just tell everyone everything at first. They wouldn't fully get the gospel. But when that happened, a change took place. After that point, his death and resurrection, the secret was out. The mystery was revealed and it was not meant to be hidden at that point. The disciples, they were let in on this and they were then specifically told now, okay, he's died, he's resurrected, now go tell everyone. Go tell everyone. Go to the nations and just tell everyone now what has happened. 
And that's exactly what the disciples did. Right after Jesus resurrected and ascended and the Spirit came down, what happens? What, what is the first thing we see the disciples do? Peter stands up and he preaches. And who does he preach to? To the same Jews who just killed Jesus. To the same Jews whom, whom Jesus preached to. But Peter preaches to them in a way that Jesus never did. He preaches to them in a way that Jesus was never able to because he had not yet died and risen. But now, after the fact, we see Peter boldly proclaiming not a mystery, but a very clear truth. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He ends, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Does it sound like he's trying to keep things a secret anymore? The secret's out. Just let it be known. This is the mystery of the kingdom, but now Peter's just telling everyone, and know for certain, that he's the Christ. Jesus, the guy you just killed, he's the Lord and Christ. This lowly carpenter from Nazareth, no-name no town, he's God and Savior. Believe and be saved. Secret's out. Now, so far, this has all been a, a lengthy and involved introduction to our passage for this morning. But that, that's kind of on purpose, and that's kind of required. Because we're coming now to Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 25. But we really, th- these verses, they're tied together with what came before the parable of the soils. These all come together. They belong together. We've had to split them up into several sermons for the sake of time. But I wanted to just go over that recap. Make sure you're getting the full, the big picture. And I'll say this, just bottom line. Bottom line is this. Everything we've seen in the parable of the soils with Jesus teaching in parables, concealing the truth, keeping a lid on his identity as Messiah. With all that in mind, do not confuse his grand mission with secrecy. He didn't come as a secret agent. Christ's overall goal was not to conceal truth from people. If that was God's intention, he would never have sent Christ. He would never have spoken to man. But God has spoken to man, and he did send Christ. And God speaks most clearly to man in Christ. Isn't that what Hebrews 1 verse 2 says? God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. God is revealing himself and his salvation to the world through Jesus. So do not confuse Christ's mission with concealing the truth and definitely do not confuse your mission as his disciples, with concealing the truth. Rather, you are to let the truth shine in your own life and the lives of others. And that's the the balancing message that we find from our passage today. So we've labored enough now, we can finally read our passage and and start getting into it. Mark chapter 4, look at verse 21 with me together.
Verse 21, and he was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Now, hopefully you have a better grasp on the bigger picture here. We're just going to spend our remaining time focusing in on these verses. And from them, we find two timeless practices that every Christian must pursue. Two timeless practices that every Christian must pursue. The first one is this, personal evangelism. Personal evangelism. We've already done the the groundwork, the labor of the heavier truth. Now we find some some practical lessons. The first is personal evangelism. Start again in verse 21. And he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket. Is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? Earlier on, Mark, in chapter 4, he fast-forwarded us to a time when Jesus was in this little house explaining the parables to his disciples. But now in verse 25, he's taking us back back in time, back to the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus was sitting in a little boat just offshore, teaching the crowd in parables. And as with all the parables, the surface meaning is obvious. It's, it's easy to understand. He says first, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a, under a bed? And we say, well, no, of course not. It's just like, no, duh, obviously. No one would do that. If you can imagine yourself back then, a day where there's no electricity, and especially after nightfall, your little house is going to be pitch black. You won't see anything. You're not, you won't even be able to find your own bed. So either you train yourself to fall asleep right at nighttime or you get yourself a lamp. And back then, every household had a lamp. But don't be thinking of a, of a candle, though, or a lantern. The best way we can think of it is we would call it those, those magic genie lamps. That, that's what they look like. Kind of like a teapot. You've got a handle on one end, a spout on the other. There's a hole in the middle. You pour oil inside... You take a a wick and you put it down the spout. It saturates with oil. You light it on fire and you've got an oil-burning lamp for as long as you have oil. That's what they would carry around. It would continually burn. And the purpose of such a lamp is always the same. To provide light. That's it. So no one would get a lamp and put it under a basket or under a bed because that, that that defeats the whole purpose. You're not trying to hide this light. You're not trying to conceal it. No, you very much want it to shine, to illumine your entire room. In fact, you want it to illumine so much that you're going to, like he says, put it on a lampstand. You're going to give it its own stand, put it in the middle of the room so that the whole room gets light. That's, that's the purpose. That's the whole purpose of having the lamp. Jesus then says this, verse 22, For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. We've seen that before. We've seen that phrase before. 
And it's, again, cluing us in. There's more than meets the eye to this little short parable. He's talking more about lamps and lampstands here. Thankfully, his real message in this case, it's not difficult to discern. He says in verse 22, nothing is hidden except to be revealed. What is the difference between something that is hidden and something that is lost? Well, the difference is that hidden objects are meant to be found at the right time, whereas lost objects cannot be found at any time. When you hide something, your intention is that you would that it would not stay hidden forever, but that it would be revealed and used at the right time. Most women have, have nice jewelry, some fine jewelry, maybe some expensive jewelry, and you keep it hidden. You can think, for instance, of the famous sapphire ring of Princess Diana, one of the most expensive pieces of jewelry in the world. Now belongs to Kate Middleton. This ring has a huge price tag, and you know what? I'm pretty sure it's not just left lying around in Kensington Palace, like a, by the coin jar or something like that. Now I'm pretty sure it's, it's well hidden and secure, but it's not meant to be locked away forever and lost. When the occasion is right, it's meant to be put on display and presented. And the same is true, Jesus is saying, of, of some divine truth. We've already labored this point, so we don't need to do it again, but... There were aspects of Christ's identity and mission that were being hidden on purpose from the crowds. Jesus even waited a long time to tell his own disciples that he had to die. Oh yeah, by the way, I'm the Messiah, but I have to die. He waited to tell that. He kept that hidden. But these truths were not meant to be locked away forever and lost. They were meant to be put on display and presented when the time was right. And guess what? That time is now. Ever since the death and resurrection, that time is now. So the lesson is very clear that the truth of Jesus is not meant to be hidden. And the application to that lesson is equally clear that we are to let the light shine. We are called, now that the secret is out, to let it be known. Personally, you are called to share the light of Christ with a dark and dying world around you. Jesus is the light, as he himself said, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. God's word is the light, is a lamp into our feet. The word of Christ is the light. And our mission is to spread the word of Christ, the gospel of Christ, Certain aspects of this gospel were hidden during Christ's life, but it's no coincidence that after his death and resurrection, his disciples were specifically commissioned to now go share this gospel and let the light shine. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then this one, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Basically, God has called you. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him 
who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God called you. God saved you. Why? One of the reasons is so that you would now proclaim the excellencies of the God who called you from darkness to light. And likewise, call others from darkness to light. So the question is, for you, are you calling people to the light? Are you sharing the gospel? You may think to yourself, it's not like I'm Paul. I never... I never received this blinding light from God. I was never commissioned to be an apostle. But if you're Christ's disciple, you have been called and you have been commissioned. You were blinded by the light of God's grace and you were commissioned by the light of Christ. Yeah, you're no apostle, but you are an evangelist. And I'm not talking about a profession. Most of you, maybe all of you, you're not going to be a professional evangelist, a missionary but you are called and commissioned to share the news and to let the light shine. So you must ask yourself, are you calling people to the light? Are you letting the light of Christ shine among others? Are you sharing the gospel? I'm pretty sure that you all know that the good news of Jesus Christ is not supposed to be a secret. You know that, right? But do you act like it is? Do you keep the truth to yourself. You just don't really tell anybody, you kind of blend in. Maybe you're so scared of persecution and rejection that you would rather put a basket over the light than deal with it. Just maybe people just kind of leave me alone. Maybe they'll go away if I just put this basket over the light that I've received. You don't tell anybody. Listen, expect rejection. Didn't we just study the parable of the soils? Jesus was rejected. Expect it. Expect persecution. Didn't he also say the darkness hates the light? I mean, they persecuted him. Expect it. But don't let that deter you because the light of the gospel is the only thing that can penetrate into the darkness and bring people into the light, to salvation. So the question really is, do you care about the lost? Will you care for them? If you have received the grace of God and the light of Christ, your answer to that is, well, I may be scared. Uh, I may be weak. But I, I just can't put the light under a basket. I have to tell them. I have to share. I have to let the light of Christ shine. And let me encourage you and exhort you to do this. Be strong and courageous in the Lord. It's not your own strength not your own might, but by his spirit. Be strong and courageous to let the light shine. Just tell people. You can't control where the seed lands. It's not for you. Learn that last week. We'll learn it next week. But depend on his strength and just let the light shine. Put on the lampstand and tell people about your Lord. It's tempting now to devote uh, the rest of the sermon, a whole sermon to evangelism and, and continue this. We won't do that. Because we'll do that next week. The next parable that he tells is really all about evangelism. So this is not the last word. We'll see more next time on personal evangelism. But for now, this is the first timeless practice all Christians need to pursue. And and really think about this. Take seriously your call and your commission to share the good news, to spread the light, personal 
evangelism. The second timeless practice to pursue now is personal examination. Personal examination. We didn't get a chance to talk about this during the parable of the soils, but there's an element of personal examination in there. It's a, it's a fitting application. When you, when you study the parable of the soils, part of you should be asking yourself, well, what type of soil am I? The bottom line is this. True believers are the good soil. That's that. True believers are the good soil. However, at times, do you act like you're hardened to the truth or shallow in your devotion or distracted The parable of the soils is ripe for personal examination. It's legitimate to ask ourselves, am I bearing fruit like the good soil should? And consistently throughout Scripture, that's the the mark of a true disciple. They bear fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold, but they all bear fruit. The question is, are you? Are you growing in godliness? Are you waging war against sin? Are you deepening your walk with God? Are you heeding His will? And if not, why not? Maybe you think, well, God causes the growth, so my spiritual maturity is just up to Him. But our God-given responsibility in the matter is very clear, and God holds us accountable to heed His words. Thirteen times in this section on the parables, Jesus uses the verb to hear, to listen, And that's on us. That's our responsibility given to us. Listen. Listen up. Take heed. Pay attention to these words and accept it. It's like verse 20 says in the parable of the soils. The true disciple is the one who hears the word, but they all hear the word. He hears, he accepts, and then he bears fruit. And if that chain is broken, something is wrong. You need to continually saturate yourself with the Word of God and accept it, embrace it, submit to it, and then you will bear fruit. This chain, though, starts with listening and hearing the Word. And that's precisely what Jesus says again in our passage. Look at verse 24. And He was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. There's that word again. He's not talking about what music you have in your car. He's not talking about what audiobook you listen to next. It's not about sound waves entering the ear. He's talking about what you believe, what you heed. Take care, pay attention, choose carefully what you accept. This is a call to consider your faith, to consider it well. He continues in verse 24. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you and more will be given you beside. Back then in the marketplace, they didn't have pre-packaging. If you wanted to buy some olives, there was no jar. There was no shrink wrap or vacuum sealed, freeze dried. There was nothing. There was just a basket of olives. You had to come, you had to measure some out, how much you wanted. And merchants could be stingy or generous in their measurements. It's kind of like a scoop of ice cream today. You get that person, and you know you got a stingy person. They give you that tiny, little, weak, pathetic scoop. It's one scoop, but it's not much. you got to find the person who really digs in and like compresses it, packs it down, and builds it like a snowball. That's what you want. It's still one scoop, but it's a generous scoop. 
And that's the idea here. It, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. If you're generous, God will be generous to you and will give you more besides. And Jesus is not talking about money. This has nothing to do with money here. The, the commodity in question is spiritual understanding. Jesus is teaching the law of spiritual return on investment. There's a promise of reward based on your effort. You've been entrusted with the truth, with spiritual truth, and if you are diligent and faithful to understand that truth and apply it, you'll be given more. More understanding. Like verse 25 says, For whoever has, to him more shall be given. But there's a flip side. There's a warning in verse 25. Look there. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. There's a common criticism of our world. You've heard it. The rich get richer. The poor get poorer. And Jesus is saying, spiritually, that's true. That is a true reality, spiritually. What's he saying? First, we learn that only those who invest will receive a return. And this is talking about spiritual truth. You have to invest in the truth, accept it by faith, seek to understand it in humility, apply it, and follow it. And if you do this, you will receive a return on that investment. You don't get rich, you get spiritually rich. More truth is revealed to you. Resulting in what? Greater godliness, greater growth. And that's the greater blessing. And we find really that faith then, that accepting the truth, is the key that unlocks a whole world of spiritual treasure. I've heard a lot of Christians somewhat discouraged because they don't really, they're like, I don't know the Bible, I don't know God that well, I don't know all these spiritual realities. And you know, that might be true. But if you have faith, you have the key that unlocks a door to a great storehouse of spiritual truth and maturity and growth. Remember, it's through the truth that God guides you and sanctifies you, like Jesus prayed, John 17, verse 17. He prayed for the church, sanctify them in your truth. The word is truth. Right now, you may be a spiritual sapling. But if you have faith and devotion to the word, you accept it and seek to understand, it's just a matter of time before God will grow you into the mighty oak. And the blessing God gives is disproportionate. He says, more shall be given you. Even a small investment in the truth of God reaps a great spiritual maturity. But there is a warning here. For whoever does not have even what he has, or thinks he has, as Luke says, shall be taken away. This is talking about the person with a false faith. This is the person who, who thinks they're spiritual, but they really have no desire for God, for His Word, for His will. And even the little bit of spirituality they think they have will be taken away from them. Their spiritual understanding will shrink to nothing. Such a person will sink away from the truth in indifference and ignorance, and they will be left blind to the transforming truth of God. And this is a warning against spiritual atrophy. It's like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. But if you neglect it, it will waste away. 
We've all seen bodybuilders, and uh, I'm always amazed when I see a bicep that's as big as a person's head. And you ask yourself, how does, how does that happen? How do they get that way? And, and the answer is through years of labor and discipline and striving and pursuit. But we've also probably all seen the retired bodybuilder. And they're no longer so impressive. Their muscles are gone. They've packed on a few pounds. And you ask, well, how does that happen? And it's through years of atrophy and disuse and a lack of discipline. Spiritually, the same is true. And this leads us back now to personal examination. It's like God in His Word, He's given you a gym membership. Here you go. You have your weight room. It's right here. And church, it's just a warm-up. That's all church is. It's a warm-up session. The question is, what are you going to do next? What will you do with the truth that you receive from the Word, from church, whatever? Will you work it out? Will you pursue it? Accept it? Follow it? Or will you neglect it? Ignore it? Will you continue in your own ways? Back in the day, many people heard Jesus. Many people heard him, but not all accepted him. Hearing Jesus is not enough. Just like going to church is not enough. It doesn't mean anything. Rather, you must hear in faith, receive, accept, submit to the truth. And again, isn't this the difference between the good soil and the bad soil? The good soil are those who what? Hear the word, but they all heard the word. But they hear and then they accept and then they bear fruit. Yet countless people come to church every Sunday. They sit week after week, hour after hour, hearing the word. They hear the truth. They know a lot. They just hear it week after week. They've been exposed to these wonderful, significant, amazing, profound truth about God. They know His plan. They know the gospel. They've heard it a thousand times. But then, nothing. They do, they do absolutely nothing with all that they've heard. Their lives are no different. They play the part of Christian one hour a week on Sunday mornings. They play it wonderfully. They look like a Christian. But the other hours of the week, the other days... You can hardly tell that they are supposed to be a disciple of Christ. Really, I, I wouldn't have known. And it's not like these people don't know better. They know. They have heard. But they have not accepted. There's no heart acceptance. The seed of the truth has not penetrated the soil of their heart. And they don't bear fruit. And even the little spirituality they think they have will be taken away from them. Because the sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And the longer a person persists in hearing the word, but then turning a a deaf ear to it the rest of the week, the harder and harder their heart becomes. The fact that you can come to church and hear truth and not act on it is a scary thing. And I tell you, the most hardened sinners are those who come to church and sit week after week and they hear the truth, but they do nothing with it. They never heed the truth. And their heart just hardens to the truth. Don't let this be you. 
and thereby examine yourself. Realize this. Spiritual knowledge only condemns us unless we act on it. You get that? Spiritual knowledge, knowledge of the truth, it only condemns people unless they accept it and act on it. Otherwise, it's just words of judgment to you. Unlike Gnosticism, the more you know doesn't make you better. The more you know doesn't make you holier. This is not a secret knowledge religion. Rather, the more you know simply makes you more accountable to God. The more you sit in church, the more God is, is thinking, what are you going to do now? You are far more accountable. You open yourself up to a greater judgment. And if you fail to accept and appropriate and submit to the truth, you will receive a greater judgment. God has already revealed to you so much. Especially at this church, you know the Word. We actually preach from the Word. Believe that. Hopefully you read the Word. You've heard the truth. What have you done with it? What have you done with His Word? What have you done with His Son? First, through personal examination, you need to embrace the truth, submit to it, accept it, bear fruit. Look into your life. Am I just sitting there and it's going one ear and out the other? week after week? And how, how can you change and, and let it penetrate your heart and accept and, and live? And then secondly, through personal evangelism, when that happens, share the word. As you accept it and, and apply it to your own life now, you'll be properly compelled to let that light shine. And you'll do so in a non-hypocritical way. Show people the light of Jesus, how it can transform a life and give you a hope and a joy and a peace and then let the world know. We know this, there's still a lot God has hidden. Right? Even after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he didn't reveal all of his cards. There's still many mysteries of the kingdom that we don't know. Just think about this, the glories of heaven. What's that going to be like? We don't know. There's more truth to behold. There are greater glories to be seen. But only those who accept the Lord now and who heed His word will ever see it, will ever be granted the greater glories and mysteries of the kingdom. And make sure that's you, that you hear the word, that you accept it, that you bear fruit. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. Let's pray. God in heaven above, we say along with Christ, your word is truth. And our prayer is that you do sanctify us by your truth, by your word. You have put your power in the word. The word of the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In it we can be transformed. In it we find the words of life. Jesus says many hard things. He calls us to a hard way. And for this, many people turn away from him, but we confess now with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so we do confess you, and we do heed your word, and I pray it penetrates us. If anyone here, their hearts have become hardened like clay, I pray you melt them, 
soften them and, and let the seed of the word get down under that surface and take root and then bear fruit. It's a work you must do, Lord. We pray in your sovereign will that you, you soften all of us. But at the same time, we are called to hear, to listen, to heed. So may that be the, the conviction that bears upon us now. And as we do that, may we turn that conviction into a, a, a desire and a pursuit of evangelism. For those who have been impacted by the word, we know. We, how, how, can we, how can we keep this to ourselves? How can we not share the true transforming grace and power and joy that comes from your word? and your gospel. So we pray that the light shines brightly at this church. May we not be those who who keep it to ourselves, who keep the word only in these four little walls, but that we take this out to our community and beyond. Because you're worth it, and the gospel is a message that we all need to hear and live by. We thank you for your word. May it be a lamp unto our path for the rest of this week and beyond. In your name we pray. Amen.